tell me about the Azel Rodney situation. So Azel Rodney was part of an organised crime group. They'd done business with a couple of Colombian drug dealers. We're following at a discreet distance. The voice on the radio it goes, right, attack, attack, attack. It was probably the most difficult call I've ever had to make. Anyway, I decided I had to make it. I fired a series of shots. He's, he's dead. When did it occur to you that you were going to end up in a 10-year court case? What were the press calling you at that time? The Equaliser, the Metzone serial killer, got all the photographers running up alongside and trying to take pictures through the window. It's what is going through your head at that moment? Mate, I was like, what the f*** is going on here? After all of these years, do you have any one regret? Welcome to the Eventful Lives podcast. I'm your host Dodge and I'm the founder of Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sport and music festival. On this podcast I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. If you haven't already, do us a favour, press the follow button and check us out at Dodge Woodall on Instagram, TikTok and YouTube, where we've now had over 80 million views. Tony Long is the most prolific police marksman Britain has ever seen. For 25 years, he operated in the Met's most elite firearms unit. His operations saw him take down terrorists, killers and hostage takers. Tony shares his story of being tried for murder that saw his life crumble around him. This is the eventful life of Mr. Tony Long. Tony, welcome to the show, mate. Nice to meet you. Yeah, and you too, and you too. Let's roll all the way back. Where did you grow up and how did you become London's Met's top firearm officer? Um, I'm not sure I was the top, but uh, going back, um, I'm a South Coast boy. I was brought up between Bognor Regis and uh, LA, or Little Hampton. Little Hampton. My best jokes, and you stole it before I got it out. Um, yeah, I was uh, I was brought up on a 1960s Heidi High holiday camp. Um, and uh, my mum was the uh, secretary, uh, and uh, my dad was the bar manager. Uh, and uh, I was born on a holiday camp up in Suffolk and as a baby moved out of this holiday camp. Um, I was privately educated, so I'm sort of a posh kid, but mm. not really. Um, and uh, so I went to boarding school at the age of seven in Sussex. Uh, left at the age of 17 because I wasn't going to get any more qualifications. Um, Been brought up on a, a diet of war magazines um, and uh, war films and cop films and uh, sort of, uh, you know, 1970s uh, cops, you know, in New York chasing bad guys over rooftops with guns and getting in car chases. And I thought, yeah, that's, that sounds pretty exciting. And I certainly wasn't going to join the police and patrol the seafront in Bognor Regis. Mm. So I ended up, you know, going to the, going to the smoke. Did you? And joining, the, joining the Met. So where did you go? When you joined the Met up in, what part of London did you join? Well, obviously I went to Hendon, which is yeah. northwest London, which is, in those days, everybody went through recruit training at Hendon. And then I got posted to Lewisham. Okay. In South East London. Okay. Which is a good good learning. So that's straight in, straight in the deep end, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, straight from Little Hampton to <laughs> Lewisham. <yeah. laughs> what yeah. was it? What, how old were you when you, when you uh, were training up in Hendon? Um, I was 18 and a half and I was already a welfare case because right. me and my mate had this deal down in a holiday camp that we only dated um, girls that were there for a week on holiday or two <laughs> weeks max. Never go with the staff because they were there for the whole season. <laughs> so uh, I'd left school. I'd yeah. gone to work at the camp um, doing like maintenance and stuff on the build-up to the summer season. Um, and then all the, all the, the first part of the summer season was old, old age pensioners. 
and they were used as a sort of a test bed to make sure everybody was you know, the kitchen was working mm. properly and all that sort of stuff. So there were no kids my age uh, except the waitresses. Uh, ended up making one of them pregnant. They never told me about contraception at yeah. all boys boarding <laughs> school. Um, and so halfway through training school, I ended up um, uh, having to get married, literally halfway through. Went away for the weekend, came back married mm. at 18 and a half. Uh, and the funny thing was my father-in-law wasn't at the wedding. And the reason that he wasn't in the wedding was because he was in prison. <laughs> so, uh, what was he banged up for? Uh, receiving a lorry load of stolen lorry tires. He'd been nicked by the regional crime squad. Uh, and I knew this because my, my wife, the bee, had told me. Uh, but I, called up, I got called up to see the, um, the commandant at Hendon. And um, I thought it was about my married quarters because, like I said, I was being treated as a bit of a welfare case. And he said, Is there anything you'd like to tell me about your uh, future father in law? And I no, sir. He said, well, perhaps you'd like to read this. And he hands me a letter <laughs> and I look at it and it's got from, you know, prisoner 4629 at Stafford Prison, um, asks for day release to go to the, we the wedding of his daughter, Kim, to police constable. I said, I'm going to Metropolitan Police. <laughs> so obviously I denied it. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Did he get let out for the day? No, he didn't. No, 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 he didn't. Okay. no the first time I met him, I shit myself because he was like a big old bruiser. Yeah. Um, a uh, bit of a gypsy, bare knuckle fighter, the kindest, gentlest person you ever met. And he was a really good artist and I'm yeah. quite good at art. Yeah. So we, we hit it off straight away. But I remember the first time I met him, I was proper bottling it. Yeah. And uh, I went up to get some drinks at the bar and came back, tripped and spilt beer all over him. <laughs> As a good start. <laughs> a good start. But no, he was, he was all right. Yeah. Was, he, was he sound as a pan with you, knowing you yeah, were going to be a uh, copper and everything? Yeah, he was. Yeah, well, okay. I mean, I was already a copper by the okay. time we first met. He was okay. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, because sometimes old school back in the seventies, eighties can be a bit older. I mean, I don't want to copper in the family. And do you know what? He was absolutely fine yeah. with it. But I had to. All, all the only the only thing was that I had to tolerate him telling me that he was innocent. He'd been fitted up by the regional crimes got oh, literally no. every time I saw him. How, he he, how long do you get? Roughly, can you remember? I don't know. To be honest, no, I don't know. It wasn't certainly wasn't his first offence. Yeah, you know. He was at it earning a pound note. Well, Fair yeah, play to him. he said he was innocent. And, you know, what? I, mean, I don't know. I mean, back in the day, he <laughs> might well just be that, you know, he was a bit of a face and yeah. uh, his, time had run, his time had run up and yeah. it was his turn to get nicked. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. But yeah. I, it was a whole lorry load of what stuff. Was the, what was the movement for you then when you went there? When was the first time you said, you know what, I actually want to go in this in this department? What, firearms? Yes. Like? So, like I said, I was brought up in Sussex um, and, uh, you know, I told you what my interests were. So I always had guns. Yeah. You know, I always had air pistols and air rifles and probably before legally you should have done. But mind you, this is back in the 70s, so maybe not. Um, and there was plenty of places, certainly in the winter, you know, go down on the beach and shoot, go to the woods and, mm. and shoot and stuff like that. So I'd always been interested in guns and I was a bit of a, a you know, student, I suppose, of firearms. Um, and so as soon as I was legally able to get a, what of course a Section 1 firearms certificate or shotgun certificate first and then a Section 1 firearms, which back in the day were pistols yeah. and rifles. Um, I joined a, a rifle club in Chichester uh, and I found that I was actually quite an, a natural pistol shot and started winning competitions and things like that. So when I joined the Met and I was given married quarters, I had a safe in my married quarters and I brought my guns up from Sussex and uh, you know carried on doing sport shooting, yeah. really. Um, getting a firearms um, course was pretty limited back then, certainly mm -hmm. if you look 12 and a half, which mm -hmm. is what I did. Um, and so I didn't uh, I didn't get a shots course when I was a regular copper. I eventually went on a unit called the Special Patrol Group, the SPG, uh, where pretty much everyone on the, the unit 
were trained in firearms. You didn't have to, it wasn't a requirement to be on the SPG, but most guys did yeah. do a course. Um, and I did a, I did a course. Nowadays, I think an initial basic firearms course just to carry a gun is about eight weeks. Right. Back then it was five, Okay. five days. Five days was five it? Five days okay. on the indoor range. Okay, yeah. so if you're a good shot, off you go, get in there. Yeah, well, is that basically I mean, what it was? They weren't all good shots, but no, I mean, but I'm you know, saying but, if you were a good shot, yeah, you'd yeah. then get in. So yeah, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, okay. So I went on my basic firearms course and I got pinged as being above, you know, standard yeah. and um, encouraged to to become a firearms instructor. Yeah. So I did the firearms instructors course, and back then, um, the unit was called D11. D department was training, so yeah. D11 was a training department predominantly. But in 1975, as a result of all the uh, international terrorism um, the SAS had just a year or so previously been given their counter-terrorist role and the Met were told you need to have a unit that's able to hold the fort until such time as the cavalry arrive i.e. the SAS yeah. um, and they went mm, you know we're very proud of being an unarmed police force we don't want to create a, a, an armed counter-terrorist yeah. team well, let's give it to the instructors because they're all good shots. Right, okay. So that so so. So you were one of the originals. Uh, I wasn't one of the originals because the firearms unit was first formed in 1968. Okay. 1967, the previous year, three Met officers had been shot dead by a guy called Harry Roberts. Harry Roberts, yeah, the gang okay. that he was with. Yeah. And so that was when it was established that up to that point there was no formal firearms training. It was literally a case of. You used to be in the army, didn't you? Yeah. Right, here's a revolver. Go and look for that bank robber. Yeah. And it was there was no real formal training as such. So in 1968 or 67, uh, after that, after what we call the Foxtrot One One shootings, um, they Foxtrot One One shootings. What's that? Foxtrot One One was the call sign yeah. of the unarmed Q car. Or sorry, the not the unarmed Q car, the uh, unmarked Q car. Yeah. Um, that the three officers were in that stopped Harry Roberts and his crew in their car. Um, so uh, wow. the call sign, their call sign was Foxtrot 11, and it became known as the Foxtrot 11 shootings. Mm. Um, so the, the, the firearms training unit was formed in '68, and their job was to train something like 5,000 regular bobbies and detectives and people like that that needed mm. to carry a firearm. And like I said, in 1975, they were given officially like a formal operational role mm. to be a SWAT team, for yeah. want of a better word. So I, I actually joined it in 83. Yeah. So about nine years after they'd been, yeah. eight or nine years after they'd been given that operational role. But it was still very much in its infancy. And you're probably too young to remember a TV show called Dixon and Doc Green, but you may have heard of it. Have you heard no, of no, Dixon and no. Doc Green? No, no. So back in the 1950s, there was a, a film made called The Blue Lamp. Uh, and the Metropolitan Police lent an awful lot of support to the making of this film. It was a typical, you know, West, uh, West London studio, yeah. black and white film. And it followed the story of a guy uh, who was an experienced old sweat PC teaching a new lad the ropes. Mm. Um, and he was as straight as a these were laser beam, this bloke. He was mm. so straight, he was absolutely incorruptible. You know, he's smart in his uniform with his metal ribbons up and he walked around the beat with his hands behind his back, you yeah. know. Um, Walking ten to two. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, um, and in the end, he got shot. Okay. Um, and that, this was a film as mm. opposed to a TV show, but it became such a popular film, um, and the Met had lent their support to it because, to be honest, the Met were going through a period in then in the sort of fifties, um, pretty much like they're going through now. They mm. they couldn't do right for doing wrong. There was there had been undoubtedly some corruption. Um, they didn't have a very good reputation, and what this 
film did is it basically painted this image yeah. of what the Met wanted Londoners to think their police force was. Um, and then it was so successful, they then, as a spin-off, they made a TV show where Dixon and Doc Green uh, got brought back from death, mm. <laughs> from, from the grave, mm. and he became this character. And it went from like 1950-something right the way through until the 70s. I mean, it was probably the most tele, you know, yeah. popular TV show, or one of the most popular TV shows. And like I said, it gave this image, uh, and most of the, the image was around the fact that, you know, the Met Police don't carry guns, or mm. British police don't carry guns. Um, and it painted this image that was totally false, really, because obviously we did carry guns, yeah. um, and we weren't whiter than white, mm. you know. Um, but that was the image that they wanted to portray to such an extent that they sort of buried their heads in the sand in relation to the real use of firearms. Yeah. And it was like, well, we don't want to talk about that. Yeah. The senior officers were like, you know, you just yeah. hide away. So you weren't allowed to use the word gun on the radio, police radio. You know, if you needed urgent assistance, you needed police to come with firearms because you were getting shot at. You used to go, oh, I need units here and they need to bring equipment. Right, okay. If you see the word gun on the radio, like the inspector would drag you in his office. And he, Why? Well, because they just didn't want the public to know that we had guns. That you were carrying. Yeah, okay. it was just ridiculous. You didn't have, you had holsters, but you had to work, carry them in your pocket what was so the, they couldn't be seen. What was the law back then when all the bank robberies were going on in the 80s? Massive. What was the law? 70s, 80s. Massive going in there, banging out money from every bank and every courier, whatever was going on. What was the law back then for you guys to prevent this happening? Well, really, the only people that were, were doing anything proactively were the Sweeney, the flying squad. Yeah. Um, and like I said, you know, one of the things that encouraged me to join the Met was like TV shows yeah. and films, yeah, exciting, yeah. exciting yeah, yeah, yeah. police work. And, and really what did the deal for me and made me sign up on the dotted line was the Sweeney came out. Right, the perfect at, time. At perfect time. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I want. Yeah, Ford Granada, yeah. long hair, two-inch revolver. Again, Tash, big old handlebar tash. Sadly, I couldn't, Did grow, you <laughs> I couldn't grow one until I was about 40. <laughs> but yeah, so that that to me was was what I, what I joined to okay. do. And, um, you know, as a ordinary regular uniform copper, you'd know there were bank robberies happening because you'd be responding to them. Normally it was like Thursday or Fridays, which was payslip day, because everything was cash then. Yeah. So, you know, people who worked in factories got paid their money in an envelope, mm. and the security van would have to deliver that. So anywhere where there was going to be lots of cash would get robbed. As I was joining uh, in the 70s, it was banks. Mm. But quite quickly, they stopped robbing banks because banks upped their security. Yeah. Um, and started putting screens in. Before that, you could just hop across the counter and bit of glass. Yeah, if yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, so that became more difficult to do. So then they started doing cash in transit. So security vans and, and security van companies would slowly but surely keep adding bits and pieces, airlock systems, and all the rest of it until it became too difficult to do that. You know, and, and so they'd have to change the way they went about doing it. Um, but the flying squad w were responsible for uh, investigating and proactively dealing with armed robber, rob, robbers, but they kept it very much themselves. Mm. So a certain amount of flying squad officers at every officer would be trained in the use of firearms. If you weren't, in, if you didn't have a gun, you'd have a, a pickaxe helve or a, or a baseball bat, mm. <laughs> literally. Right, okay. Um, and what, in the back of the car? In the back of the car, yeah. yeah and uh, Given to you or you bring it yourself? 
Um, they were, I think they were issued, bizarrely. They were issued with pickaxe okay. shells. Pickaxe. Can you imagine it? <laughs> Baseball <Yeah>. bats. <laughs> Baseball bats, yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, so they go out on jobs, and they were detectives were always um, a little bit, uh, what's the word, uh, too cool for school. Yeah. You know, they weren't interested in doing tactics. You know, D11, the firearms training wing, was saying, you should stand back, get behind cover, um, you know, challenge with a good shout of armed police, yeah. put the gun down. But these were experienced street coppers, and they knew that if you did that and you were 12 yards away from the yeah. bad guy, the bad guy's going to have a 12 yards yeah. head start on you when he legs it. So yeah. they would just swarm out of a, you know, their hiding places with their pickaxe elves and their guns wow. and, and bash them up, basically. Yeah. They used to call it a bash up. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you were aware of that as a uniform officer, um, but you didn't really get have any involvement in it. Um, and at that time, D11, which was the nearest the Met had to a SWAT team, wasn't doing it either. Mm. The flying squad would keep it. They were very secretive because it was all based on informants. They knew that robbery was going to take place because an informant had given them the intelligence to put together a plan. And there was a good chance that the informant was actually part of a robbery team and you're going to have to let him leg it and, and escape. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, you know, all this stuff. So there's a grass in-house. In-house grasp. Honour honor amongst thieves. Thieves, It's yeah, rubbish. Yeah. It's nonsense. They will all grasp. Well, have the old bill of the police ever bung people like that? You're saying you've got an informant. Oh, for yeah, him to speak. There, there, was an, there was an informant's fund. Absolutely. There's an informant's fund. Yeah, yeah. yeah that yeah. you would give him 10 grand or five grand, or back in the day, maybe a grand to say, well, give us the heads up on that. And well, yeah. And of course, you know, there might, there might have been a chance that you, you know, the detectives that were... The, this was, it's all changed now. But yeah. back then, um, you were judged on your ability as a young copper if you wanted to get in, in the CID in particular on informants. So my surname's Long. Uh, when I first uh, went to Lewisham, my nickname amongst the local kids, especially the black kids, was mm. like schoolboy. Yeah, schoolboy. Mm. You know, and I had to like buff up my chest and yeah. know, pretend I didn't look 12. Yeah. And, uh, and eventually, you know, I, I became quite, back then there was a term, you still hear it occasionally now, uh, but the term was thief taker. And it was almost a sort of a, a term of honour. You know, if you got called a thief taker, it meant that you were a good copper and you were proactive. And that probably meant you had informants. Yeah. Um, and then I only did five years street duty at Lewisham. Uh, period of that was as um, uh, with a view to being a detective on the crime squad working in plain clothes. Um, but my nickname changed from schoolboy to gra long grass mm. because... The, the local villains thought that I had loads of grasses working for me. In your pocket? Yeah, in fact, I didn't. Mm. I, I used to play mind games with them, so yeah. you'd stop some little shit bag, and you'd go, well, you had a bit of a result the other night. And they'd be like, what are we talking about? Mm. And I went, you know, that uh, burglary down the high street, all the fur coats. That was you, wasn't it? Yeah. And I'd like grin and wink, and oh, don't fucking tell me that. Yeah. <laughs> and so you'd give them a little clue, like subtly, yeah. and they'd go, Fucking that so and so told you that. Well, he did this, yeah. you know, and they just, they'd all grass on each other, yeah. you know. And so I had about, and, but a lot of the people that, you know, I had weren't um, registered informants. Mm. In fact, I, I don't think I ever had a registered informant. I, I, my informants were people like a mum who was concerned that her teenage daughter was hanging around with little mm. toe rags. Mm. And then she found a stash of letters that these kids were sending from remand home while they were waiting for trial for burglary or whatever yeah. it might be and she'd let me read the letters right. and I'd okay. get to know the nicknames and I'd get okay. to know who was hanging with who and you, yeah. it's like a big puzzle yeah, you put, put it, it all, together yeah. but if you had registered informants mm. that meant that 
you it, you actually registered his name and you were then eligible to get him money for any information that officially that grew that yeah that yeah. bore fruit. So if he told you there was going to be a burglary. Um, and these were the guys that were going to do it, and this is the vehicle they had, and where it was hidden, and everything else. And you put together an operation, and succeeded in arresting them. He got some payment for the fun. So you'd have done that for pure wedge. You'd have done that for pure money, yeah. rather than yeah. getting off, saying, yeah. "Well, you're going to get three years for this. Yeah. If you give me the heads up on that, I'll reduce that to six months." Yeah, yeah, all of that. Yeah, mm. yeah. all of that, and yeah. So, but yeah, so you might have someone say there was the getaway driver, so he wasn't carrying a shooter on the plot, um, but he'd be allowed to leg it. Now the detectives knew that, but they didn't want to use plods, yeah, yeah like me, yeah. Um, or like the flight, you know, like D11, because mm. we were all, you know, we were uniformed blokes, yeah, and uh, so they keep it all to themselves, and so we didn't actually start getting involved in armed robbery plots until probably the late eighties, okay, um, and when we did, um, we started shooting people because that's what we were trained to do. A lot of the detectives. It's a different story for a detective. So, for instance, you know, let's say you're following, I don't know, Joe Schmo, mm. armed robber. Well, when you're putting the case together, you're doing a lot of surveillance on him. And a lot of that surveillance is, um, what do they call it, lifestyle surveillance. Yeah. So you basically want to know where he's going, who he's meeting and all the rest of it. It's not you're following him to watch him do a robbery. Yeah. You're following him to build up an image of his lifestyle. Yeah. So you followed him with his kids down at school and seen him drop his kids off at school and pick them up, yeah. you know. Um, and so he's a real person to you. And so even if you do find yourself with a gun in the hand and you catch him on the plot wearing a balaclava and carrying a gun, there's a sort of an inbuilt human, you know, barrier, if you yeah, like, from yeah. actually actually shooting him. Whereas to us, he was just a, a, a face on a briefing sheet. You know, wow. and if we caught him on the plot with a gun and we were much more com confident in the use of firearms, uh, that's what we trained to do. Yeah. So it wasn't that we were deliberately shooting people um, or going out of our way to shoot people. If, if we shouted armed police and they dropped their guns, then they didn't get shot. But they'd have to drop them pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, How quickly are you thinking, he's got a shooter, I've got a shooter, he's going to shoot me or I'm going to shoot him? How quickly you got to think, this is like half a second stuff, right? Second yeah, stuff. Yeah, so I, when I was, most of my career as a, as a firearms officer, I was also an instructor, so... Um, what I used to teach to people was, which was my policy, in, you know, the way I, not policy, but the way that I dealt with it was, if someone's got a gun in hand or a knife in hand, I can shoot them. I can so, shoot them now yeah. if I want to, and I can justify shooting them. Yeah. Um, so having made that decision, now why shouldn't I shoot them? Yeah, do you get, yeah, it? Do you get yeah, what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, so it's like, yeah. right, but yeah, you know, he's, 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 the gun's pointing muzzle down or whatever, but I've made that decision to shoot him. So if, if he just even so much as starts to Flips bring that gun up, yeah. up Okay. You know, I'm going to shoot him. Okay. A lot of coppers work on the premise like, oh, he's got a shotgun, but it's pointing at the floor, so I can't shoot him. Mm. Um, so, and but the time it takes for him to bring that shotgun from there to there yeah. is fractions of a second, mm. and an action will always beat reaction. Yeah. So unless you've already action will made, always beat reaction. Yeah, yeah. That's half a second quicker than you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you've always so if you haven't made that decision that he, if he twitches his fucking shot, yeah. then you are playing. You are behind the curve. Yeah. And you're not going to get your shots off. Um, so, so your mindset is, I'm going to shoot him. Well, no, no. As long as he keeps I, his gun I, down, I can shoot him. Yeah. Why shouldn't I? Shoot Why shouldn't? Him? Okay. As long as you keep your gun down. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of my my my. Take what was on. that feeling like on your first shot? How many people have you shot? Uh, 
Five. Five people. Yeah. Do you remember your first shot? Absolutely, yeah. yeah my, my first incident was, so I'd been in the department, I joined 83, so it's two years after I was in the department. It was Boxing Day 1985, and we got called out from home um, uh, on, for a domestic siege that had been going on for nearly 24 hours. Mm. So our, our standby team had been there, um, and it was we got a call at home. So <laughs> in those days, of course, no mobile phones, yeah. had pages. Yeah. Um, so the, the only people that had pages was the standby team. So when they when you when you took over that role, you'd pick up your, your gas powered pager, yeah. um, and it, if it beeps, you get you get into work. Yeah. Um, so I got a phone call at home, um, like Christmas Day, saying, "I don't know if you've been watching telly time, but there's this siege going on." I said, "Yeah, I've been watching it." You know, um, they said, "Well, we're trying to put together a scratch team. Um, are you available tomorrow if we need you?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah give us a call." Yeah. Uh, and it was my son's third or fourth but third birthday uh on boxing day yeah and my, my missus is listening to the phone call and she's like what you mm. just agreed to go into work yeah, you yeah. fucking what yeah, yeah. Uh, so oh, don't worry yeah. about it i said it'll all be it, yeah it'll, blow over. it'll, it'll, blow, it'll yeah. be stood down by the yeah. tension well, of course it didn't mm. so i got up early in the morning uh me and my mate uh went into work together but it's a share lifts at the time and we discussed you know what we, you know we'd had a, almost had a briefing because we'd seen what was going on on the screen mm. on the television and every time uh, the negotiators went forward to talk to the suspect through the broken kitchen window, our team would come up on either side of the window so that they couldn't be seen by the suspect, uh, but they'd have sledgehammers and they'd have their guns out and all the oh. rest of it and the stun grenades ready to go in case it all went tits up. Um, and so we went, all oh, right, okay. So we kind of had this briefing. Um, and but occasionally he'd come out on the balcony on his own, this bloke. And I remember my mate saying to me, um, we should take a baton gun. Because baton gun had just come into service, but it was meant for riots, and it was only actually authorised for public order use. And it's a 37mm round, so it's mm. about that big, mm. uh, about that long. It's the thing that they were firing in Northern Ireland, yeah. plastic yeah. bullets. Yeah. Um, and uh, after the, the riots in the early 80s, it was authorised for use on the mainland UK. And we thought, well, if he comes out on the balcony shoot him with that and that would distract him and we can grab hold of him before he gets back into the flat where this little girl was being held hostage this little four year old girl was and where was this in London? Uh, Northolt North so okay. over by Heathrow okay, Airport. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. so um, yeah anyway and we, we get to the base and uh, one of our inspectors is there and he's going to be in charge of us and we said boss we've just been think, talking about it on the way in you know, get it back and go nope it's only authorised for public order use you know Ooh, can't mm. use it so we said well yeah but no 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 buts all right, okay, so that was one option out the window. And then we got down there, we got briefed by the team, and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we moved forward. So we, we've been going forward, backwards and forwards so often, we've left the sledgehammers on either side of the window. So mm. if you get called forward, the sledge, there's a sledgehammer waiting for you mm. there. You know. So um, just after we arrived, a new set of negotiators came on, and they didn't want us anywhere near it. They were convinced that the reason he wouldn't surrender is because we knew he knew that we were yeah. out there with guns and that we were going to shoot him as soon yeah. as he came out. Um, and so we just got pushed to the sidelines. Yeah, well, we, don't, we, don't, we don't want the suspect to see you, da, 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 da. So at one point they called forward his wife, who he tried to grab at knife point the day before when the negotiators had sent her forward, which is a complete no-no anyway, yeah. to, to get like a yeah. member of the family or someone involved in. And um, and at one point he, he 
she, she, he's sending four on the balcony again and he goes they're going to attack me and she goes no they're not they're not going to attack you you know they promised me they won't what's that sledgehammer doing they throw that sledgehammer over the balcony so the girl goes picks a sledgehammer up drops it over the balcony well there were firemen downstairs <laughs> with a with a with a blanket yeah. ready to catch the girl if he dropped the little girl yeah. over the balcony nearly took out a fireman and missed him by about that much um so it, the, the whole thing was a you know a, they were the, the on-scene commander was so desperate that it wasn't going to be resolved by the use of firearms that he you know he goes in order guns aren't to be seen da, 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 da. like i said it was this dixon and doc green yeah. sort of mentality anyway long story short short wires got crossed the suspect came out on the balcony um people at one end of the balcony thought he was making a break for it because he had a knife the big kitchen knife in his hand thought he was going to try and fight his way past us and get down the down the stairs and away so they broke cover but in point of fact he he, he wasn't he, he sprinted along the balcony to grab hold of a riot shield that had been abandoned at the yeah. beginning of it to drag this back this riot shield back into his flat to help him build his defenses up mm. and he managed to get back in the flat before the team so they came face to face the lead guy had the right shield thrown at him um, and he was in and that was it we were committed then um, and it was it was purely down to a lack of coordination poor management mm. uh, and everything else so we ended up throwing stun grenades in um, I clambered through the window uh, the kitchen window um, and uh, he made the kitchen into a bit of an obstacle course he pulled the fridge over onto its side and the washing machine so I had to clamber all over that the smoke from our stun grenades um, basically meant I couldn't see my hand in front of my face um, and uh, turned out he'd he'd also wired the fridge up uh, to the electrics thinking that it, we'd get electrocuted yeah. for whatever reason I don't know mm. that didn't happen um, and I found my way into the living room and he was using this little four-year-old kid as a, as a as a shield the lighting was really poor the curtains were pulled and um, it was just starting to get dark mm. it was sort of late afternoon and um, I shouted at him. I think I called him the C word or mm. something similar. Yeah. I dropped the knife or whatever. I was just angry, to mm. be honest. It's just like this poor little kid. She'd been treated like a rag doll mm. for two days. Uh, was it his kid? No, well, no, no it wasn't. It wasn't okay. the, the press kind of got confused about yeah. this. It wasn't his kid at all. Uh, basically, his wife had left him because he. So his, <laughs> going mm. back to what you're saying, mm. he he was an armed robber, and. Uh, him and his little crew, all West Indian guys, um, had all been nicked, and he turned Queen's evidence, right. grasped all his mates up for a, for a lesser sentence. Yeah. So he got a less, lesser sentence, and that sentence was in protective custody. So instead of going to prison and going on a wing, he spent it in a in a closed down police station, where he had the whole cell passage to himself. He had a little gym in one cell. Mm. He had a TV. He had conjugal right visits. Mm. Um, and after a relatively short period of time, he was released back into the world, went back mm. to his wife um, and started beating up on her right, okay. and raping her. Right. So his wife tried to report this to the police. Mm. The police were like, well, it's domestic, because mm. back then, I mean, nowadays, you know what the, what, you know, how conscious we are yeah. of domestic violence. Yeah. Back then, it was like, oh, there's yeah. another, another woman, yeah. you know, there's no point taking her court, into court because she says she'll say he yeah. she loves him and all yeah. that. So nothing got done. Um, so eventually she takes a kid and she goes to her half-sister, mm. um, whose flat this was, mm. um, a woman called Jackie Charles, and she had a daughter the same age. 
Um, so anyway, he turns up Christmas Day yeah, okay. demanding to see his kid. Yeah. His wife runs next door to use the phone. Obviously, no mobiles. Mm. He's run next door to use the phone. He's forced his way in a flat, tries to take the kid. Mm. And Jackie Charles tries to stop him. And he stabbed her 14 times. Oh, my God. Um, she had like defensive wounds all over. So when you went in there then, going back to where we were, when you went in there and you were like, right, calling the C-bomb, yeah. down to, what was the next movement for you? Like you go back a minute ago, you're saying, right, it's either me or him. I'm well, he, to had take the, him out. he had this knife and I could see yeah. the knife glinting. Yeah. And uh, like I said, he, he was, this little girl was across him. They were both, you know, they were both black. Yeah. Um, and literally all I could see were their eyes and, and their teeth. Mm. And it was really hard to make out where her body ended and his began. Yeah. But I could see his shoulder. There was a sort of beam of light on his shoulder. And so I just just fired a pair of shots at his shoulder. He didn't drop the knife. And to this day, and I say this every time I, I do an interview like this, and I wrote about it in the book, I can't honestly tell you whether I fired my shots immediately before he stabbed the little girl, as he stabbed the little girl, or after he stabbed the little girl. Mm. It all happened. So he stabbed so the little girl. He stabbed her. He stabbed, and he stabbed, it's the same knife that he killed... Um, Jackie Charles Jeez. with okay. and he stabbed one of the stab wounds he'd, he'd already stabbed the little, slashed the little girl in front of mm. the negotiators in front of the mm. negotiators a day before um, right down to the bone mm. so she already had a bandage like, well I'd say a bandage it was a bit of old rag tied around her wrist around her arm so did you knock him do you knock him down no so what happened he's, so you, bearing in mind he's, he's sitting on a couch mm. he's sort of sla- he's in the corner of a, of a settee with a little girl across him yeah and um so I fired two shots instinctively because I came up, I tried to use my sights because that sort of, we, we used to do um, what we call an instinctive shooting or mm. sense of direction shooting where you keep both eyes open and you fo- focus on the threat yeah. and you just punch the gun out in the same way that you point, I'm pointing my finger yeah. at you now. And it's a great technique for close quarter shooting um, provided you know, you've got a big target. Yeah. Like, you know, it's just one person on their own. But with a hostage, you really don't want to be doing that. Yeah. You want to use the sights mm. so you can get pinpoint accuracy. But I brought my gun up, and of course it's dark, and I can't see my sights. So I fired a pair of shots instinctively at the furthest part of his body away from the little girl. Mm. One of those rounds, so the knife was up like that, so one of the rounds went through the muscle here, mm. and the other one went through his clothing, so I only hit him with uh, one of the two, the two rounds that I'd mm. fired. But what happened then is he instinctively sort of closed his eyes and went into a ball, right? at which point the flash from my gun had illuminated, silhouetted my, my sights, and two, he'd exposed his temple yeah. to me. So I fired a deliberate aim shot at his temple. Um, and I just saw his, I didn't know whether I'd hit him, I thought I had, because his eyes kind of rolled up into his head, like the classic movie, you know, eyes up at the top of his head. And then he just slumped. And I thought, you know, he asked me what, yeah. you know, what I thought. I thought, well, I've fucking killed him. Yeah. Um, now the unit was created as I said earlier, you know, that's 68. We were given the full operational role in 75. It's now 85, mm. and we've not fired a shot in anger. Yeah. We've been out on like probably a couple of hundred jobs in that de- decade, but never had to fire a shot. And in point of fact, uh, we were so proud of that role. The older guys in the unit and the bosses of the unit were so proud that we'd resolved every incident we'd ever dealt with by you know, softly, softly, catchy monkey, yeah. you know, negotiation, you know. Um, that we would never fire a shot and if we did fire a shot the boat that did it would be directing traffic yeah. in Lewisham High Street the next mm. day you know because mm. it, you, you, you would have fucked up their yeah. 
perfect reputation. Mm. So the first thing that went through my head is, well, you've fucking done it now, mate. You've, yeah. you, you've, you've actually done what you've been training to trained do. To do yeah. And um, so... Was I, there any knock-on effects? Was there any knock-on effects? When you kill someone, what are the knock-on effects? I didn't kill him. Oh, you didn't kill I him? Know, I was going to come to that. Okay. So what, so what happened was, um, and this is a theme through every shooting I've been involved in, I don't know whether it's guilt or whatever, but you just, I thought I'd killed him. Mm. So I'm fucking hell, I've killed a boat. So it's like, well, what do you do? Well, it makes yourself busy. So the first thing I did was grab hold of the little girl and the knife was sticking out of her. And you're always taught with knife wounds to leave the knife leave in situ, in. not yeah. take it. So I sort of took hold of the knife to stabilize her, but she, she, she just slumped, her body weight just slumped and the knife just came out. So I dropped it on the floor. I picked a shell dress and I didn't take the shell dressing out of its wrapping. I just literally just stuck it where the knife had been, picked her up and took her out of the building. Um, I couldn't get out of the building straight away because he'd put a load of barriers up against the door. So it's just as well we went mm. through the windows. Um, but eventually those barriers were withdrawn. I got out on the balcony. There was still um, blood on the balcony and it had been raining all day. So it was really slippery. So I was really conscious of that. And I ran down the stairs and uh, ran past the negotiators which we, who were just looking at me like, uh, what mm. have you done sort of thing. <clears throat> Handed the little girl over to the ambulance crew um, who literally just, there was no paramedics in those days. Mm. Literally just shoved her in the back of the ambulance and drove out. I helped get the ambulance through the crowd because there was an angry crowd, mm. uh, predominantly black. Mm. Uh, they weren't angry at, for what I'd done because they'd been baying for this bloke's blood, yeah. you know, uh, because he'd killed a black woman and he was holding a little black girl mm. hostage, you know. They, mm. they, they wanted him dealt with mm. and they, they were angry because it appeared that the police weren't doing anything. Um, so um, I, I helped clear the path for the ambulance to get out and then I realised I still had my gun in my hand and um, so I tucked the gun in my jacket and, and, and went upstairs and uh, when the team came in um, a couple of minutes later because we'd taken over another flat down the balcony as our control room mm. and I thought right make yourself busy make yourself busy so I was making them I'm making them bruised and, and making <laughs> so you're making yourself but, busy to get this off get, get yeah, something to, else off yeah, the yeah, mind to keep okay. off the mind yeah, yeah okay. absolutely that and um, the, the team all came in and uh, you know it was, it, was, it was a bit bizarre really because man hugs weren't really a thing in the 80s yeah. but yeah. just folks were like oh fucking hell mate you yeah. know and uh, someone said something and I said well I don't worry about it he's fucking dead in he? he says no he's not right. he, he, as soon as you left the room his eyes popped open and he said finish us off yeah. and um so yeah, he stood trial in a in a in a wheelchair, and I got called to the old Bailey to give evidence. Like, however many months later, mm. you know, eight months, nine months later, um, I got commendation for the judge, um, and uh, I think I got commissioner's commendation for bravery as well. Um, but I was never suspended from duty though. I was the first person to do it. They didn't yeah. know what to do with me, so I literally went. The next, when I went back to work after Christmas, I went and saw the armor and went, I need a new revolver. They issued me a new revolver, oh, okay. and I was back on the ops team, yeah. you know. So back then, they really didn't know what to do with me, mm. uh, and I just went back to our usual cycle of three weeks training, one week ops, you know, yeah. ad infinitum. Sort of thing. Tell me about the Azel Rodney right. situation. We're moving on here to, mm. what, to 2005. What happened that day? What was the surveillance? What was going through your mind? So we'd done the job the day before, um, and it was, so I should say, so, you know, we talked about the previous jobs. Yeah. I don't know how many operations we were doing a year then, but we were really just in our infancy in yeah. terms of being used by proactive squads like the Flying Squad, like the Regional Crime Squad, starting to do this thing. Then we had all the drugs 
and bits and pieces. Yeah. So it was it, all of my shootings basically reflect reflect sort of uh, criminal activity. So yeah. we've gone from like you know or, or the progression from the department from the like domestic siege to a pre-planned robbery plot and then to drugs yeah. and drug importation and all the rest of it. Um, so Azel Rodney was part of an organised crime group based in sort of West London, uh, sort of Neasden and places like that, predominantly Afro-Caribbean, but there was some uh, white criminals in amongst them and there was also um, a, a handful of um, South American, like uh, Hispanic. Um, and they their primary job was drug distribution, but a lot of the drugs that they were selling, they were ripping off from other drug dealers, basically. Um, and Robbing other drug robbing dealers. Other drug okay. dealers. So they, they'd done business with uh, a couple of Colombian drug dealers that were based in Edgware uh, on previous occasions. They'd gone there, they'd laid down the money, they'd taken crack cocaine or whatever it was they were doing. I think they were stealing cocaine and yeah. they had a little crack factory. They would yeah. turn it into crack. And um, the last time they'd done it, the guy that had done the buy sort of came back and went, they're rich for the taking. Yeah. They've got no protection at all. They're very trusting. Um, you know, we could, I'd, I'd have robbed them with a knife if I'd had a knife with me. Mm. No. So the information was that it, it was like um, we had a, a, a Photoshop of about 20 odd photographs. It'll be like this guy will almost certainly be on the plot. But as for the other guys, it could be any one of these. Yeah. And, it's probably going to be between three and four of them. Uh, we don't know exactly where in Edgware this, these victims, these drug dealing victims live, but what we do know is it's somewhere near Edgware Underground Station. But that's all we know, and it's a flat. That's all we know. So we can't afford to let this robbery take place because if they killed the Colombian drug dealers, and let's be honest, if mm. you've done deals with these guys before, mm. you're not going to leave them alive. Mm. You know, it would just be... Hung in yeah. suicide, so you know our, our intelligence suggests that they're going to rob and then kill, and they're probably not going to just rob what what's in the flat. They're going to probably torture them until they can find out where the main stash yeah. is and take the lot. So that that was the sort of route that it was going down, and um, so we'd gone out on this job on the first day um, and nothing happened, which is really common. You know, probably eighty percent of the jobs yeah. you go out on fizzle. You know, and then you'll go out on another time, same job, and it'll come off. But so we got stood down, and we got stood down sort of quite late in the, in it, probably like nine o'clock in the evening, and we'd been on since six in the morning. Um, and we'd all we'd really done is sat in what we call gunships, which are our unmarked um, cars, three up, uh, with all our weaponry. Uh, one of the cars will have method of entry kit in it, you know, in case we have to go into a building. Uh, there'll be medical kits and everything else. By this point, you know, we are a totally different body to what we were when mm. I had my first shooting in 85. Mm. We were doing at the time somewhere in the region of 850 to 1,000 operations a year. Is that right? Yeah. Jesus. And that was between about 100 men. Right. And women. Okay. So we were split up into six, sort of, no, sorry, not 100 men, what I'm talking about. It's more like 60, actually. It's probably sort of six, 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 ten man teams. Yeah, roughly. Okay. Yeah. So we were doing a lot of work and there was a lot of it. That's a lot of graft over that 20 years, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it started off much less than yeah. that, but it progressed yeah. to that point. Um, so anyway, we got stood down and we got told, reparade at six o'clock. Um, and this is on, it, so the, the first day was a Friday, the second day is going to be a Saturday. Um, and because we'd had guys book leave for the weekends, um, when we came in the next day, rather than it just be grey team, which was my team, 
we had a splattering of guys from Orange Team, a splattering of guys from Black Team. That's not a problem because that happens all the time. Mm. We're always short-handed, so you're always working with people from other teams. Yeah. All of our training it, it runs parallel, so we all in a, in a six-week cycle we all do the same training team, the same instructors. So there's no one doing anything different, you know. And um, so that we get briefed mainly for the benefit of the new guys, um, and and we're off and running. And um, what what we're told is that um, the previous evening, um, the bad guys uh, had been trying to get guns together to do this robbery, um, but they kept making excuses to the the victims, to the Colombians, saying, "All right, we're trying to get the money together." You know, da, da, da. eventually the the um, uh, the victims went, oh, "Stuff it, leave mm. it." You know, we've got things to do. It's Friday night. I mean, we'll do it in the morning. Contact yeah. us in the morning. Um, and so um, we got told that things had changed overnight. They obviously had facilities on these bad guys. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know what those facilities were, um, but almost certainly their phones were tapped so yeah. we could listen to conversation. But, of course, they're talking in patois. Mm. You know, so that conversation that's been listened to it's has, to, has, has to yeah. be interpreted. So yeah. they'll probably have some you know, West Indian guy listening to it in, yeah. a, in a call centre somewhere. And then transmitting that information to the their point of contact within the unit yeah so there's always a bit of a danger of information either getting misread or lost in translation if you tell so so you never treat it as 100 percent. but the more that this job progressed the the more it looked like the intelligence was like a1 it was good so we got told to make our way to um southwest london to a police station i think it was, I think it was fulham and, and sit on standby there because we thought that there was going to be a meet between the robbers at a cafe at, after a certain time. So we all made our way to the, the um, Fulham police station, parked up in the yard. It was a nice spring day, last day of April. Um, and uh, we just chilled, basically. Mm -hmm. you know, bit of banter, getting your head down. You know, A couple of guys would go around the corner and come back with some coffees, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. It was, it was pretty laid back. And then the radio started getting a bit busy. Yeah, we've got subject one um, into the cafe. All right, okay. So looked like it's you know starting to go the right direction. All right, you know we've got subject five come into the cafe now. Uh, okay, so eventually we get a third subject. They get into this car, uh, which was a higher higher VW Golf, uh, and it was hired by Azel Rodney using a forged. Um, driving license so it's got his features on it it's got different names and everything else mm -hmm. and he's hired this car and it's over hired now it's, it should have been handed back in but they're obviously using this to get around mm -hmm. so they then followed away by the surveillance team now what we do is we the, you know we're not surveillance trained we're surveillance aware mm -hmm. so you've got a degree of surveillance training but we're not experts in surveillance that's the that's their job the surveillance team's job so and we were using a radio uh, called Cougar which was a military encrypted radio. So now the bad guys can't listen yeah. to what we're saying. But it means that we have to keep within a certain range of the surveillance team in order to make sure we've still got good comms. Otherwise, people are going to be making phone calls and mm -hmm. trying to. So, anyway, the subjects uh, go to a known address that the, 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 the team that are deploying us, which was a, a team within, a secretive team within the flying squad who dealt with um, ser uh, contract killings and fast-moving uh, jobs that almost certainly involved like 
somebody being killed, basically. Um, so the surveillance team starts heading north towards, um, again, I want to say Kilburn, but it's not Kilburn. I can't remember the name of the place now. Uh, but it's a predominantly black area. And um, we're following at a discrete distance in a convoy order. So three unmarked high-performance saloon cars and a... Um, like a uh, probably like a Mercedes Sprinter, not mm. Sprinter, but you know one of the small vans, sort of thing to use as a taxi, mm. and that'll have the team leader in it, one of our drivers, and the silver commander, the detective in charge of the operation on the ground. So, what the information we're getting is that they're going from to a meet in I'll call it Kilburn, but it wasn't Kilburn, um, in Kilburn to collect the third gun, and they've been heard talking on the radio, uh, and they've said um, we've got. We, 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 we want two Big Macs and a little one. Now, at the time, uh, there's a submachine gun called a Mac-10 Mac. submachine yeah. gun, uh, and it stands for Military Arms Corporation. And they were made in various places, but the main ones were made in Marietta, Georgia, in the States. And they'd been around since the 60s. Uh, they'd been used by the CIA in Vietnam. Yeah. They'd been used by UK Special Forces in Northern Ireland. And basically, it's I describe it as a lead super soaker, Oh. It fires over a thousand rounds a minute. A thousand? Yeah. In 60 seconds? Yeah. My God. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the magazine only takes yeah. 30, but you, yeah, if your really math is good, yeah. you can work out quickly yeah. you're going to get through a 30 round magazine. Yeah. So, so an MP, Heckroncock MP5 mm. um, fires 850 rounds a minute. So it's still fast, but it's much more controlled. And you've got 30 in each one, eh? Yeah, Have you? Each magazine, yeah. Each magazine, you've got 30. Yeah. Unload, bang, 30. And if, okay. you're, and if you're inexperienced yeah. and you just grab hold of that trigger, it will just go. It's okay. going to climb and it's going to, you know, it's pretty uncontrollable. Unless you yeah. know what you're doing and you're firing very short, like two or three round bursts, yeah. it is like pretty lethal. Now, there was a load of these in circulation and it was one of the main jobs in the Met at the time was trying to take these things off the street. Mm. And what it was is an underworld criminal armourer had bought about 100 of these things um, on the pretext that he was going to, uh, from a legitimate arm source yeah. that he was he needed them for a James Bond film um, and they think they were that's right they were blank firers so he bought them as blank firers so the barrel was blocked yeah. um, and, a lot of things. and what he did is he converted them back right. so they were live fire yeah. and they were getting used in contract killings and, and particularly drug related contract killings a lot yeah. and so you know any getting a Big Mac off the street was, was a Big Mac yeah. getting a Mac off the street yeah. was sick considered a, a thing and that way we had two of them allegedly and, and probably a handgun or a little, you know. Yeah. So anyway, we knew that they were they were going to um, Harlesden. It was they were going to go to yeah. Harlesden and get this third gun. And um, sure enough, they pull up and they pull up outside a West Indian um, club, private club, where there was a lot of activity out on the pavement, you know. And they were chatting to people, lots of you know hand slapping mm -hmm. and all that sort of stuff. And then all three of them went off into a side street where where they were met by a third guy who gave, gave them a bag. And then they went back to the car. That bag was put in the back of the car. And at that point, they're still on the pavement talking, but we get the information they've got the third gun. And at that point, the guy in the back seat puts on a what was described as a three-quarter length coat. Um, and we're like, well, why would you wear a three-quarter length mm. coat on a hot yeah. day? Because um, a MAC-10, is it's not like a pistol. It's you know sort of this big, you know, yeah. it's quite a bulky bit of kit. Small, Smallish, but bulky. Mm. Um, and then they're off and running. And so we're back in behind the surveillance team. And when the surveillance team are doing their following bit and we're just hanging back, 
that's called state green. Yeah. Um, when it gets to the point where the silver commander decides that he has sufficiency of evidence to warrant stopping that vehicle and making arrest, we go to state amber. Okay. And at state amber, the surveillance team need know that they need to start looking in their mirrors because if they see us coming up, they need to pull over and let us. Yeah you know, leapfrog up to the front until we're in a position where we can take over the follow. Now, we're not surveillance officers and we're not driving little discrete surveillance vehicles. Mm. We've got to have vehicles that are big enough to get three big blokes yeah. with body armour and all their weaponry and everything mm. in. Um, and, you know, we're all white and we're in Harlesden. Yeah. We're now heading towards Edgware. And most of the way between Harlesden and Edgware, there was no decent fast stretches of road for us to, to get through the surveillance team. So it was only when we hit the, I'm guessing it would be in the A1, that the Silver Commander goes, right, stay amber. So at that point, we start getting through the surveillance team um, and um, we get to Mill Hill Broadway mm. and we finally get up to the front and we declare state red. So that tells everybody on the operation the arrest is imminent, the hit is imminent. Yep. And it goes into a, a road and they're heading towards a big roundabout. Um, and if you turn left, you, you're going to Edgware, and they would have been to Edgware Station within a, a matter of minutes. Mm. Um, and we're basically told, right, you need to do this now, because if, if we lose them at this stage, which is possible, um, you know, you only got to get to a set of traffic lights, mm. you know, and they get through on green and we're stuck like, stuck mm. on red. Then, and and these Colombian drug dealers get killed. We've got a duty of care to Colombian yeah. drug dealers. We can't let that happen. Mm. So we. The, voice on the radio which would be the guy in the lead vehicle who's the the, the like the, the convoy commander at this stage of the operation goes right okay attack 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 which is the words on the radio yeah. so we're going to hit him before the roundabout if we get a chance we're going to hit him at the roundabout if we get a chance and then almost immediately goes attack 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 and the, the alpha vehicle that's the lead vehicle yeah. does an overtake to get in front and the bravo car which i'm in is going to if everything ends up correctly we're going to block them from the side and i'm the front seat passenger so my job is is what we call static cover. Yeah. So if you think about it, you're probably not even aware of it, but when you get out of your car, even though you might have had your car for two years and you're absolutely familiar with it, and you know exactly where the door handle is, you look at the door handle. Mm. You probably don't even know that you do, but mm. your eye glimpses down to the door handle. Mm. Um, you could probably do it by feel in the dark, mm. but you'll always kind of look. Mm. You know, When you open your door and you step out, nobody steps out into the dark. Mm. Everybody looks, even briefly, mm to make sure that you're not going to put your foot down a manhole mm. cover or, you know, treading some dog shit or whatever. Mm. Um, and then you've got to put your plot cap on. Now, these are all little seconds where your attention isn't on the occupants of that vehicle. And then you've got to run round and you've got, then you're going to bring your gun cover. Wow. So the concept is, it's, it's cover and movement. It's a military basic premises of like infantry tactics is that you only move when a, a section of your team are covering yeah and you leapfrog forward yeah. that's kind of how you do it so you work on exactly the same premise the static cover guy in the front passenger seat just locks onto the occupants of the vehicle guns up ready to shoot if he needs to be and that allows the other guys to run and you know get themselves into position yeah. um, and then as soon as you pretty well start hearing shouts of armed police and, and you kind of have a little look and you see that other guys are on it then you bug out get out of the way so that's that's the way that we do it now on the Friday, I was driving the Bravo car, yeah. um, and my mate Smudge, next para, is like front seat passenger. So if the job had happened the day before, he'd have been yeah. perhaps 
having to open fire, as it was on the man in the in the hot seat there. So my perception was that it was pretty well a classic stop. The Alpha overtakes, slams on the brakes, the bad guys are concentrating their efforts on on uh, Alpha. Bravo pulls alongside and blocks them so they can't move out, and the Charlie car stuffs them up the arse so yeah. they, they, they can't back out of it. And then it's aggression, domination, and shouts of armed police, smash the windows if you have to. If they start trying to, you can see the driver trying to get it in reverse, blokes will take shotguns. Um, there's one bloke in each car, and his sole job is to take out the tyres with breaching rounds from a from a sawn off shotgun. Um, flashbangs maybe, but certainly you're going to smash the windows and you're going to, don't give them thinking time. Yeah. That's, the, that's the premise of it. Um, and, and to be honest, I, I thought that's kind of the way that it went because I was just focused on that vehicle, you know. That, and then particularly as we, as, as, even before the hit went in, it come over the radio, the guy in the back seat is looking around. So I had it in my mind, I think, that we were potentially compromised here. The, the bloke in the back seat was sort of doing this, and yeah. doing that, and then he looked like he was leaning forward, and. My my perception was that he, they were a bit of a heated conversation going on in the car, like, you know, the old Bill's behind yeah. us, you know, whatever. Yeah. So anyway, Zell Rodney's sitting in the back seat. It's quite a big unit. It's only a relatively small car. It's only a Volkswagen Golf. Um, and like I said, he looks around like this. He leans forward, and then suddenly he just ducks across the back seat, and I can't see him. And I think, fuck, he's going for a gun. Mm. So I bring up my carbine, and I'm locked on target, and just as quickly, he springs back up again, but I can't see his hands. His shoulders are hunched, he's, he, and he, but he's looking sort of out the other side of the car. His back's to me. I don't think he's even seen me. I think I don't think he was even aware that the Bravo car was alongside. And I thought, oh, he's got a Mac 10. He's got a Mac 10, and he's going to open fire. And I, but I can't see his hands. So it was probably the most difficult call I've ever had to make. You know, if you've got a if you've got a guy, I've said this before numerous occasions, but if you've got a guy using a four-year-old child as a shield and he's got a knife in his hand, that's not a difficult decision to make. Mm. If you've got three bad guys all wearing balaclavas and holding a security guard hostage at gunpoint, you know, two sawn-off shotguns and a pistol, that's the simplest decision in the world. Yeah. You know, people go, oh, it must be so difficult to make a decision. It's not. Yeah. But when you can't see a gun and you're going on the intelligence that you've been given and the suspect's body language, that that's a big call to yeah. make yeah. anyway I decided I had to make it so I fired, I fired a series of shots um, and nothing happened other than the window shattering and everything else he seemed to just remain in that position and I, I didn't think about this until afterwards but if I'd have shot him out on the street I'd have probably fired two three rounds mm. if they were effective he would have started to fall um, and I would, at that point I, I would probably have stopped or I might have fired a f further round because it, in, in the same time action beats reaction yeah and it takes you time to see what they're doing and make the decision to shoot. It also takes you time to realise that they're starting to fall and stop shooting. Yeah. Yeah. So most people, when they shoot, they'll probably fire one or possibly two rounds more than they perhaps needed to because the brain hasn't quite, quite mm. registered. So I fired a total of eight rounds. And, and of course, now I know that Azel Rodney was not only sitting in the back seat of the car, so the back of his thighs, his arse, and his, his back was supported by the car, but he also had a seatbelt on. What I didn't realise is that uh, my shots were having an effect, but he was just slumping towards me. It was his body weight taking him down, and suddenly when he got to about 45 degrees, he dropped. And at that point, I thought, right, it's done, job done. Mm. So my car's quite close to his. I couldn't have opened the door 
with his car there. And although I can no longer see him, I, I don't know he's not still a threat. He might still have his hand on the Mac 10. So I do what we're trained to do, which is clamber across the front seats and come out through the driver's door. I went round in a circle. I come up behind the car um, and I tried to look in through the back window, um, but I couldn't see anything. All I could see was back. So I smashed the rear window with the muzzle of my gun um, and looked in and I still couldn't see anything. It just To me, it was in darkness. What I later found out, it didn't occur to me, was that I would have never have seen him on the back seat anyway because the rear parcel shelf on a like an old-style mm. Golf is about that deep. Mm. It's actually got quite a big boot. So looking into it, I would, I would have never seen beyond it anyway. And what I thought was darkness was actually just the matte black, um, what do you call it? You know, the lid, yeah. the, the hatchback lid. So I then went round to the other side of the car. I noticed that a window was smashed on the other side of the car. Uh, and one of my mates from the Alpha car had come round and he was covering. So he gave me a nod. I opened the door, he covered in, and Rodney was lying across the back seat. Um, and he reached in and he grabbed hold of him by the sort of scruff of his collar and pulled him into a vertical position. And at that point, his head sort of flopped like that. And I could see this massive, what looked like a exit gunshot wound um, to the top of his head. It looked like he'd been hit by an axe. I could mm. see grey matter. I, I don't know, he's, he's, mm. he's dead. Um, and bits of brain matter came out onto my mate's trousers and stuff like that. And my mate looked at me. I, don't, I can't remember any words being said, but I'd worked with this guy for 10 years, you know, or longer. Um, and we kind of didn't need to say anything. He kind of looked at me as if to say, is this you? Have you? Is this your work sort of mm. thing? And I went, yeah. And he went, oh, fuck off. You don't need to be here. What was that feeling like afterwards on this shooting compared to the others? What was going through your mind? Do you think there was going to be huge knock-on effects from this? When did it occur to you that you were going to end up in a 10-year court case and well, it didn't be, be it trying didn't, to get done for murder? It didn't really occur to me until a couple of years after the incident. So within a few months, well, within about, so, so let me take through the pace. So by this time, the whole, the whole um, post-incident procedure has changed. They're not going to go and issue you a, a new revolver the next day yeah. and say, go back to work. Yeah. Now you're going to be suspended yeah. for at least a couple of months at this point. That's what I'm thinking. Um, the IOPC was, was a rebrand from whatever it was called before. Mm. Um, and there'd been lots of problems with the original format. And so there'd been lots of discussions between the police service in the UK and this new body to make sure that some of those issues would be resolved. And one of the issues was how long police officers were being suspended for. It just wasn't considered fair. Mm. You know? um, and so the original decision was, what we will do is we will come back to you within, I think it was three weeks of an incident, and we will tell you, that we will give you an update. Um, and, you know, if... If we need longer, we'll tell you how long that's going to be, and when we get to that point, well, you know, and so on and so forth. But we will update you on a regular basis. But if after, th I think it was a month, if after a month we have seen nothing to indicate that the officer acted unlawfully, then it'll be up to you as a police service as to whether you reinstate him. Okay. Um, so four weeks later, I'm still suspended. In the meantime, we've um, had the um, the... 2005 London bombings yeah. and we've had 7-7 um, seven, seven. Seven, seven. Mm. and then we had 21-7 yeah. uh, where the bombs failed to go off yeah. and where um, John Charles de Menezes was killed Yeah. so there's now me it was a Stockwell tube station yeah. was it back then Yeah. so there's now me and the two guys that are involved in that all of us are good friends you know there's, yeah. like I said, there's only about 60 of us on the top floor so mm. on the third floor so um, we you know 
we know each other, we get on well with each other, and we're all in the sin bin, for want of a better word. You know, we're all suspended and all been investigated. Um, I'd been recruited, because I, I was literally due to retire on the 11th of August, uh, 2005. But because on the last day of April I'd been involved in this shooting, I'm suspended. Um, special forces came down to London after the bombers went off in 7-7, and then they came back down in 21-7, and on both occasions I was because I was suspended, they went, right, you're the, you're the liaison guy for them. So I'd been embedded with, with them for, for the period that they were down. Um, there was other jobs, you know, sort of support jobs that I could do, you know, working on projects and things like that. So I wasn't that concerned about it. But I'd been recruited uh, to work for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office doing protection duties for government employees in places like Afghanistan and yeah. things like that. And I was looking forward to going and doing the selection course for that. Um, so... Uh, I was sent away uh, by the FCO to the States to do this selection course, which was about seven weeks. I did that. I came back, um, which would have been about sort of late September. And I think it was November, um, the IPCC came back and said, uh, we believe that Echo 7, all of my statements and all of the team statements, we all had a, an Echo call sign and I was Echo 7. So... Um, I wasn't a, so, so so basically the IPCC said statement read something to the effect of um, we're satisfied that Echo Seven acted in accordance with the law and in accordance with his training, um, and he fired no more rounds that, than were um, required in the circumstances. So that green card. Mm. So I got put back on ops. So I was back on the team, back on grey team, going out and doing day to day jobs and things like that. But the IPCC had submitted the papers to the Crown Prosecution Service for them to make a decision. So the IPCC had done six months, decided I'd acted lawfully. Then the Crown Prosecution Service looked at it for another six months. Why did they look at it? I Surely the IPCC said, right, it's out of closed book. Why did I, it then go to that next level? I, I think because they wanted, um, you know, the, the CPS are lawyers, aren't they? So yeah. they were basically, want, they, from their perspective, as investigators, yeah. they couldn't see that I'd done anything wrong but they wanted the Crown Prosecution Service to give it the seal of approval, basically. Mm -hmm. And the Crown Prosecution gave it to a silk to look at. And a silk is like the highest yeah. rank, if you like, within sort of the system of barristers. Mm. Um, he'd looked at it and he decided I'd acted lawfully. And, and that's why they gave the result they did. So basically, almost a year to the day after the shooting, I got the all clear um, that I wasn't going to get prosecuted. And what was that like for you? Were you had, did you have the fear that you were going to get prosecuted? You no, had the no, fear of going no, to jail? I was, always fear of... I was 100% certain that I'd acted lawfully and in accordance with my yeah. training. Uh, never even occurred to me that um, there would be an issue. Mm. Um, what I didn't know was that it was being filmed. It was being filmed by one of the team guys in the Delta car from another team, uh, from Black Team. Good mate. But he'd filmed it for training purposes. Mm. Obviously not thinking it was going to end up in a shooting, but yeah. what he's done is, you know, what what the police service does in this day and age. You know, back in the seventies, they might have gone, oh, yeah. <laughs> been that. We yeah. want to see that. But he and the eighties and the nineties and yeah, the noughties and the tens. But, but he declared it, and, and <laughs> sure, yeah. he went straight to the team leader and said, to them, "Look, you need to know I filmed this." Mm. So the team leader said, "Right, well, now you've declared it, film the scene." You know, mm. so not only did he film the incident, but he filmed all of the aftermath of the scene. He filmed the first aid that was going on. He, yeah. fe he filmed the recovery of the gun. In the back seat, you you know, you filmed the suspects being searched and, mm. and led away and all that sort of stuff. So it's a, a valuable document of what happened, and he handed it in. I'd never seen it. I didn't see it. I didn't see it until five years after the incident. So by which time I've written my statement and, and all the rest of it. 
So when I eventually got to look at this video five years later, I was like, ah, that's not exactly how I recall it. Mm. It turned out not to have been a perfect intervention mm. at all. It turned out that as the as our car, the Bravo, the Alpha car did the overtake, mm. Smudge went for an overtake and then came nose to nose with a car coming in the opposite direction, swerved to avoid the other car, and my quarter of the car actually hit the bandit car. Mm. No recollection of that at all. Mm. I was so focused on the yeah. back seat passenger. And then what happened is um, the Alpha car, the, the, that caused the Bravo, that, that caused the subject to start braking early. So the Alpha car is too far ahead. Um, and, the, and everything stopped and froze for a couple of seconds while everyone, oh, what's happening here? So then the Bandit car starts to drive forward um, and the Bravo car starts to drive forward and eventually puts the block in. And the, the Charlie car, realizing that there's too much of a gap at the front, yeah. rams the back of the subject vehicle. Yeah. So the Bravo car then has to move forward. Mm, so okay. it wasn't, my recollection yeah. was, I mean, it was correct to a certain degree, but I didn't know anything. I, don't, mm. I didn't even know that we'd had a contact with the vehicle. I didn't certainly didn't know anything about the vehicle coming towards us. When you watch the film, you almost went, whoa. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it was so what close. were the press calling you at that time? What were the names well, they were Well, they weren't calling me anything because no. although they knew it was me, yeah. um, they were required by law to refer to me as Echo 7. Okay. So um, what, what happened was um, I, I started to know things were going to go wrong about a year a year or so after the incident. So we're, looking, we're 2006 now. Yeah, two, it would have been Roughly. about 2006. Okay. There, was a, there had been a shooting. The teams had been involved in a shooting on an anti-terrorist job. Um, and the IPCC were in the building, along with a woman called Sue Akers, who was the commander in charge of um, professional standards, so like internal affairs, mm. to use an American expression. So I, w I wanted to speak to both of them because I knew that the IPCC guy was the guy that was in charge of my case. Mm. I still hadn't got the all clear from the CPS at this point. And I knew that Sue Akers, as head of uh, internal affairs, would might also have some insight into how long it was going to be before the Crown Prosecution Service gave me the all clear because I was waiting to go and go work for the Foreign Office. Yeah. Um, so I spoke to the IPCC bloke and he said, oh, Tony, I'm glad you're here. He said, I'll give you a little update. And he took me into a corner and said, there's going to be a problem, he goes, because um, your statements are so heavily redacted because it transpired that the vast majority of the intelligence we were being given had come from a technical source almost certainly phone taps yeah. but I don't know that and if I did know and I told you I'd be breaking the law yeah. under a thing called RIPA which stands for the Regulation of Investigative Powers Act so any reference in the statement to things that we could only have known by phone tap mm. had been crossed out of our statements we didn't cross them out mm. somebody like within the investigation mm. team had been given the job of redacting these statements so what happened is any any fatality you know particularly in these circumstances will have to go to a coroner's court so it went to the coroner's court and the coroner took one look at the statements and said i can't put this in front of a jury mm. because the jury aren't going to understand why the police officer shot the suspect because all of his justification for doing so is redacted and, and I, not even me under ripper even the coroner couldn't look at it yeah um so that left everyone in a bit of a quandary, including the government. Um, so the Labour government, I think it was the Labour government at the time, it was, it was Blair government. Uh, they lost out to the um, Tory mm. liberal thing, didn't they? Um, so they were all like, oh, I don't know what to do with this. You know, this, this job is going to bite us because we don't... So eventually they had to change the law. 
Um, so I knew then, in 2006, it was going to present a problem. Um, and it wasn't until they created this uh, new bit of legislation which allowed a senior High Court judge to sit in the absence of a jury, listen to all the evidence and um, make a decision as to whether or not I acted lawfully or not. And that didn't happen until seven years after the incident. We suspended that whole that time. No, because I, re I retired. So, retired. so basically I should have retired in, 70, in sorry, 2005 because I didn't know what was going to happen. I lost the job with the Foreign mm. and Commonwealth Office. I stayed in the, in the, on the teams for another two years, three years. So I didn't retire until 2008. Then I worked for like in the commercial world. Mm. Um, so I left in 2008. I think it was about 2014, 2013, 2014. I gave evidence at this this public inquiry. So nine years later, you gave evidence. Yeah, and then the trial was ten years later. <laughs> because what happened was that seventy-two-year-old retired High Court judge, clearly quite a liberal person mm. in, in his background, not a criminal lawyer by by you know his career was in the civil courts, mm. and he listened to all the evidence and decided that while I had an honestly held belief that Azel Rodney uh, might have been armed, it was unlawful of me to shoot him. Um, and certainly to have shot him as many times as I did. And he decided, and he did say in the report, that he, that was based on um, a measure based on civil law as opposed to criminal law, uh, which is which is more lax. Civil, civil law, you are allowed to give opinion, mm. you're allowed to give hearsay evidence, all things that you can't do in a criminal court. But he said, based on that level of evidence, he thought I'd acted unlawfully. And so, but that was his only, that, that, that was the, the end of it as far as he was concerned. But his inquiry was set up two years before we even gave evidence. So for two years, him, another barrister, and some solicitors, and some technical experts from Northern Ireland, retired police officers from Northern Ireland, basically decided that I'd acted unlawfully before the, before we even got to give mm. our evidence. You know, they'd done reconstructions. And they'd basically been playing Miss Marple mm. for two years. So by the time we, we came to give our evidence, I'm pretty sure that he went, well, that doesn't correlate with what I think happened. Mm. And so in his eyes, I was guilty. So it then had to go back to the Crown Prosecution Service. And the Crown Prosecution Service went, we looked at this in 2006, and we thought he acted lawfully. Mm. And a silk decided he'd acted lawfully. But now we've got a judge who's had a public inquiry, who's listened to all the evidence, and he's decided that Echo 7 acted unlawfully. What are we going to do? And I think they just went, let a jury decide. Right. So... Were you still confident at that time when you when they you thought, oh, just let the jury decide? Well, no, it's interesting. There's 12 random people it, there. It's interesting. So... Throughout the public inquiry um, thing, the, the police federation, which is like our union, had, had, had got me a solicitor and got me a, a barrister, and they represented me in in the public inquiry. And I was in the box giving evidence at the public inquiry for a whole day. And and were, were, was as old Rodney's family all there? His mother was together with one of her friends. No one else was allowed in. Um, it was filmed. So it was live feed to another room where the press and everyone else could sit in. 
but that live feed didn't show the witness box. So you could hear what I was saying, yeah. but the members of the public wouldn't be able to see me because we all, the whole team had anonymity. Yeah. Um, so this whole eight years, no one knew what you looked like? No one knew what I looked like. In fact, the only the press didn't even know what I looked like because all the, what they'd done is they based their um, what, who they thought I was from a photograph on the balcony of that siege at Northolt, and they'd actually put a circle around the wrong bloke. Right, okay. Um, so, but it's interesting. I'd, I'd had press interest at one point. I went to, on a murder inquiry in the Caribbean, and a news the chief crime correspondent and a, from the Daily Mail or the Sunday Mail and a photographer came out. Um, to do spend a week with us on this Caribbean island, St Kitts, um, to because this investigation was like it was quite a sexy investigation. Yeah. It was like the sort of thing you'd make a film out of. Yeah. And we were out there provide, doing a protective role, but we were also acting as like sort of junior detectives taking statements and all this sort of stuff. And these press guys, I mean, it's a small island. Mm. Um, there weren't many any uh, Euro Europeans mm. around. And they lavished us with drinks and food. They never, we never put a hand in our pockets mm. for two weeks, you know. And um, but he, he called me Tony every day, and I called him mm. by his first name. And um, and then I gave him and the photographer a lift to the airport. The detective in charge said, "Tony, you're, you're spared today. Can you take them to the airport?" So I took him to the airport. He said, "Thanks very much, Tony." He shook my hand, and uh, I left them. I went back to the the, the base. Um, and I'm sitting in the, the murder inquiry office and the phone rings and I picked the phone up and I said, uh, murder inquiry, PC Long speaking. And the voice on the other end went, gotcha. And I said, sorry, who's this? And he said, oh, it's so-and-so. It was this, the press guy, he was ringing from the airport. He said, um, I didn't realise you were Tony Long. I'm going to come back and interview you. And I went, you fuck off. <laughs> and I put <laughs> the phone do down <laughs> You can do one. <laughs> so the press knew who I was yeah. and because I'd been involved in, in these two what had been, by the times, very high-profile yeah. incidents. Um, you know, they, so they they knew who I was. I mean, someone obviously told them, you know, who I was. That I, the Echo Seven was actually Tony Long. What sort of what sort of ripple effects did this? What sort of ripple effects happened around London at this time? A shooting of Azel Rodney. Well, so I think what really screwed me mm. was in 2000 I shot Azel Rodney in 2008 um, and I had the good fortune or common sense or whatever to shoot dead um, a young black criminal in a predominantly middle class Jewish neighbourhood so in all honesty no one gave a fuck mm. no one had heard of Azel Rodney he did, his name didn't even register you know yes there was a report you know when he, when he was named that a young man blah 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 um, but no, no one it didn't get beyond the fifth page of the newspaper but then what we had was um, the shooting of the young black man in Hackney mm. which caused all the riots yeah. in what 2011 mm. just before the Olympics mm. wasn't it yeah. what was his name I should really know his name um, they were huge riots yeah huge I was riot. living in Brixton at the time yeah. and it was kicking off everywhere well it kicked off all over the country yeah. didn't it? there was riots in Manchester yeah. um, a police helicopter was shot yeah. at in Manchester yeah um, oh my God, I can't think of his name. I'm having a blank spot. Mm. Anyway. Um, Duggan? Duggan, Mark Duggan. Mark Duggan. Yeah. So consequently, while my shooting caused no ripples whatsoever, mm. as soon as the Mark Duggan incident happened and the press went, well, who else are the police shot and everything else? Azel Rodney sort of got lumped in yeah. with the whole Duggan thing. Yeah. And the public inquiry into my shooting 
was taking place when the Duggan inquiry happened. Right. And so I'm pretty certain that that coloured everything in relation to my my one. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's probably why the CPS, when they looked at it the second time, decided that they were going to put it in front of a jury. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Um, were you confident going in on that day that the jury weren't going to send you down for murder? So... <laughs> Well, it's interesting because between my shooting, uh, it, in fact, it was just before I, I decided to retire. I'd been offered a job in the commercial world um, and um, I went home from work having told them, right, that's it, I've been given a job offer, I'm leaving the job. And I found an official looking envelope on my on my doorstep uh, and it was jury service at Croydon Crown Court. And I was still a serving police officer. But I thought, well, that'd be interesting, I'll go and do jury service. Oh my God. Have you ever done jury service? No. I've heard what a revelation yeah. I'd have never done anything contentious as shoot, picked up a gun yeah. if you knew how a jury operated you know they were literally finding people guilty or not guilty based on what day of the week it was yeah. well it's Thursday but you know half of us finding him guilty yeah. and half of us think he's not guilty well if we just make a decision today yeah. that'll give us Friday Saturday Sunday off that'll give us a long weekend right. like really right, okay. you know someone's liberty at stake here so I wasn't overly confident. In fact, when they told me it was going to be a judge sitting without a jury, I thought, mm. thank fuck for that. Yeah. You know, an intelligent man like a judge. Mm. But as I was giving my evidence, like I said, I was in a witness box all day and I had a barrister and I had a lawyer, a uh, solicitor with me. And I had a particularly hostile barrister representing the family. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't an easy thing, no. but I, I knew that I'd performed well for want of a better word yep. and the reason I think that is because you know I was my own expert witness mm. I'd been a police firearms instructor since 1983 mm. you know I knew the law on the use of force inside out I knew what our policy was on shooting and, and you know post-incident procedure and everything else uh, and I was quite satisfied that I'd answered all the questions in exactly the right way mm. but I could just tell by the judge's body language and the questions he was asking me that he hadn't got it yeah and uh, we went out the back of the court when I, obviously they, they had the court set up as I already described but there was a police area where you could get smuggled out of the court without the press catching you outside the building and I went out to that area there and uh, there were coppers on the protection team and other witnesses and they're all like oh, no Tony brilliant that was a, you know, evidence was spot on yeah. you know I was like okay cheers thanks you know and then my barrister came out with the solicitor and the barrister said Tony that is the most professional witness uh, evidence we've ever heard mm. from a uh, police firearms officer mm. and the, the solicitor said uh, we had high expectations Tony and you smashed it mm. and I went he didn't get it and I went what do you mean he didn't get it I went the judge didn't get it oh no 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 he was silly yeah, of course he did I said I'm telling you now yeah. he didn't get it anyway they took me off for a very nice lunch or dinner by that time um, and still during dinner I'm insistent and then no, 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 Tony, Tony. You're, you're, well, you just got that gut feeling. Yeah, you're just you're okay. digging yourself out. You yeah. don't you know. You definitely you know. Anyway, like <laughs> a year or so later, whenever it was that he uh, um, announced his findings, uh, I had to go to the barrister's chambers with my solicitor, and she said, "You are absolutely one hundred percent right." So when they made the decision to charge me. Um, and put it before a jury, I'd kind of changed my mind. I was like thinking to myself, do you know what? Um, even a jury made up of butchers, bakers and candlestick makers and housewives and God knows what else, you know, 
this isn't just a, a minor assault in a nightclub in Croydon yeah. they're listening to. This yeah. is this is like you know it's a murder trial. You know, it's not one person's opinion; it's twelve people's mm. opinion. And I think I'd rather put my hands in. You know, bear in mind I've, I've said this. I think I, I think I put it in the book. You know that for the whole of my service, you know, I, the, the public had put faith in me. You know, put their lives in my mm. hand. Uh, and now I was going to have to do the same. You know, I was going to have to sit there and let them listen to the evidence and let them make a decision about whether I'd acted correctly or not. And I thought, you know what? I think the vast majority of the public are going to go, well, fuck us, Rodney. You know, mm. he, you know, he knew what the score was. He had three guns in the vehicle with him and his two mates, and they were off to rob someone. Mm. You know, unfortunately, that's. And your duty was to protect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, and protect my colleagues, mm. protect the public. Protect the drug dealers. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, uh, but but being charged was definitely, and the, and the trial itself was, you know, I, had, I was confident, reasonably confident. But you still have that little man on your shoulder going, hold on, what happens if not? Of what course. was that feeling what you were talking about again? If I do get banged up, you're going to be seen as a copper yeah. in a naughty prison. Yeah. There's going to be three monkeys on mopeds using my arsehole as the ring of death. Isn't it? Mate, you're going to, you ain't going to last long in there. No. Did that go through your mind? Yeah, it did. Uh, it came home to me a little bit when the very first court appearance I had, when they when they charged me, I mean charged me, but when they read out the charges to me. What were the charges? Murder. Just pure murder. Just okay. pure murder. Okay. They tried when it got to the old Bailey to offer up an option of of manslaughter. I yeah. went, no, fuck off. Yeah. You know, no, I'm not giving yeah. the the jury a well. All right, well, let's not find him for guilty murder. Let's find him guilty yeah. manslaughter. But yeah, when I first stood up in the um, uh, what was it Westminster Magistrates Court. Mm. Um, the plan was that my old unit, bearing in mind I've been out of the job for quite some time now, they would they'd worked out a plan to smuggle me into the building. So they'd spoken to Serco, which is the civilian company that runs the courts in London. It used to be a police thing, you know, you, you, it wouldn't have been a problem back in the 80s or the 90s because the court, all the security in the court was police officers. Yeah. So you would have gone to the court inspector and gone, right, we need to get this police mm. officer in covertly and get him out covertly. Well, Serco agreed to it, but then when we pulled up at the back gates in a covert vehicle, they went, you ain't coming in here. No, there's nothing. we don't know anything about it. Mm. So I was seen by the everybody in the court, it was in a, in a box, was handcuffed to a guard, well, not handcuffed to a guard, but handcuffed, um, and taken out in handcuffs, taken down to the cells. And so the team went down, they went, right, we, we're taking him to the old Bailey because he's got to be seen before, before a judge mm. because only a judge can grant bail for murder. Yeah. And he went, He's our little puppy now. You know, we transport him to prison, uh, to the old Bailey. Yeah. So they, I'm pretty sure they deliberately dragged their heels because there was a little window of opportunity where this judge was prepared to see me and grant me bail. And they just kept putting it back, putting oh, it back, okay. putting it back. And eventually I got put on the prison van, you know, and I've got all the photographers running up alongside, trying to take pictures through the window, you know, all this. this what is going through your head at that moment? Mate, I was threaders. I was like, what the yeah. fuck is going on here? And I was, pr I, I wasn't, I don't know how I felt. I was like, it was really bizarre. It's like, you know, any criminal that's been in a similar position mm. will probably tell you the same story. But you know, you're used to living outside, and it was. A, I remember it was a, it was a bright sunny day, and everyone was out. It was lunchtime. It's like everyone was out on the pavement, and you know, enjoying their sandwiches, sitting on the bench, and people going past on bicycles. And there's me in a suit, crammed into this little box at the back. Cuffed up. Well, I wasn't cuffed up no, in, the, okay. in the truck, but I'm yeah. thinking, fucking hell. Mm. Um, what I didn't know was that the team were following. And every time the security van, and the security van driver, 
Serco driver was trying to lose them at lights. Mm. So he'd pull up at the lights, he'd wait till the lights were about to change and then go. Mm. But they were just putting the blue lights on and they mm. stuck with him all the way to the Old Bailey. And the entrance to the Old Bailey, like the vehicle entrance, is a big, obviously, big gate. But you then go down a ramp, a curly ramp, and you get to the bottom and it's um, one of those, there's not much space down there at all, but there's one of those big um, uh, wheels mm. that you park the truck on and you literally manhandle yeah. it around. And, or, so when we get down the bottom there, I can hear the guy, as we're going down the ramp, the female custodian in the back of the truck is saying to the driver, who the fuck do they think they are? They've followed us down here. And uh, when I tell you they think they are, they, they think they're the fucking police. That's yeah. who they think they are. So when I got out, taken out the back of the truck in handcuffs, it was basically like four guys from the, vac, the, the SO19, nose to nose with four Serco blokes going, we're fucking coming in. Yeah. And in the end, there was this big row in the, the lobby, the entry prisoner entry area, and uh, the team leader, the SO19 team leader, um, said, right, I ain't leaving him. Well, they're going, well, you got to. We're going to put him in a cell. And he said, well, then I'll go in the fucking cell with him. He said, well, you can't take your phone. So he literally took his phone out of his pocket, fucking hurled it mm. at the Serco guy. And he ended up sitting in the cell with me for about an hour. And we kind of giggled like mm. school kids. It was just so bizarre. Mm. Um, and then when it was all over, I was granted bail. Um, and they took me back to uh, the operational base where there was a, a load of beer. In fact, there was some beers. There was a crate. I don't want to gone out and got a crate of beers. We were a bit warm, but there were some cold beers back at the base. Um, but the, the interesting thing was that the judge at the back, the, the court was pretty well empty, except the back row of, the, of where you know punters sit in the court was made up of about twelve members of the press. Mm. Uh, and the judge was sort of commenting on that various things came up. My bail. But my anonymity came up uh, because once I was charged, I would lose that anonymity. But the anonymity had been granted me by the Home Secretary. Yeah. So it was going to have to be the Home Secretary that took that anonymity away. But the um, he then turns to the press and he goes, uh, members of the press, um, are you represented today? And um, they kind of looked at each other and some woman from the BBC go, stands up and says, no, we're not represented, but I'll speak for us all. Uh, we think he should have his anonymity taken away from him because we want to report on it today. And I'm thinking, God. why is the judge asking the yeah. press? Yeah. And my, my concern was, I was going to lose my anonymity, the press were on to me, and I'm thinking, I need to keep my address yeah. secret, because otherwise I'm going to get the press parked up on me. You know, Not only the press, maybe yeah, well, friends exactly. and family members well, coming after you. I mean, that's that was, the bit I'm trying to get to. I'm thinking, hold on a minute. That's like, my biggest concern, but obviously the press are going to lead them to. Lead them to, but my, yeah. my biggest concern, <laughs> hold on a minute, the mum's clocked you up. The press are just going to come out of here. All his mates, it's been six, five, six, seven, eight years, and you've been under the radar. All of yeah. a sudden, you're on top of the radar, potentially could get banged up. You know, and, and, and had I had I been allowed to... It's interesting, so... What would they have given you? What would they have given you for murder? Life. There's no options. But live, what, 25? Yeah. Yeah, live. And but how the, old were you at the time? Uh, I was born in 57, and the trial was in 2015, so... Your mass is probably better than mine. I was probably fifty. How old are you today? I'm um, sixty-six. Now. Sixty-six. Okay, yeah. minus eight. Okay, you were you were fifty, fifty-seven, yeah. fifty-eight, yeah, roughly yeah. around yeah. that age. Yeah. yeah. And you're going to get twenty. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Do, do you ever have the fear of anyone at that time coming after you and trying to get revenge and whatever you? Or do you think it had been so long of anonymity that it's sort of under the carpet? My. I've lived at five addresses yeah. since my first shooting in 1985. Yeah. 
and the Met Police have provided security at, since the second one, yeah. so 1987. So I've had um, direct panic alarms to 999, um, you know, written response plans to my address, um, CCTV cameras, live feed thing on my address for most of my, so a good percentage of my service, yeah. you know. Um, part of me, you know, I am, my wife's quite shrewd, you know, um, but we're not going to let it sort of ruin our lives. Yeah. You know, I, I live my life perfectly normally, yeah. but you just have to be a bit more alert. Yes, I, I think to myself, not so much, because I have had people trying to track me down. There was one, one guy who was um, a private investigator, but, but it turned out he was just a bit of a nutter. Mm. But he had a, he'd had an issue with police shooting since the 1960s. Um, and he just basically would turn up on the doorstep of a family whose wife had been, whose loved one had been shot by the police, you know, and gone, right, you know, I'm going to work for you for nothing. And he'd find out where the police officers were living. And I had wow. this guy turn up at, the, at the New Scotland Yard um, saying that he uh, wanted me and the officer invested in, in charge of the Abattoir case to be produced at New Scotland Yard on day, date, time and place so that he could carry out a citizen's arrest. I, I mean, the problem was he was written off as a bit of a nutter, but yeah. I'm thinking to myself, yeah, well, there's the nutters you need to be yeah. concerned about. Of course. Because, you know, it, I don't know. It's like, you know, it's a long, long time ago, mm. and I'd like to think that, you know, that the families have gone, well, you know, he, he, our lad was a Roman. He mm. was doing robberies, you know. Is it really, you know, in our interests to... Have to you ever seen the mum... Apart from that day in court, was there Rodney's one? Yeah, yeah. So she was at court every day with all her sons in the old Bailey, and I have to say that she acted impeccably. She's actually quite a well-spoken woman, and her basic take on it was, I expect, I accept that my son was for a long period of time. She wouldn't accept that her son was a wrong one. Yeah. Absolutely wouldn't, because the two guys in the car with him, mm. um, they were, they were given bird for conspiracy to commit uh, unlawful possession of firearms and conspiracy mm. to rob. Mm. Um, and they only did about six years yeah. and they were out. And of course, she was really bitter about that because she didn't she didn't know any of the storyline. And because of all of these issues around um, uh, a Ripper and you yeah. know, all the evidence being inadmissible, mm. no one would turn around and tell her, look, this is what happened. At one point, I'll be perfectly honest, I, I started doing a bit of detective work. So I'm out of the job now, I'm a civilian, I'm mm. working in, like I said, in, you know, in, in the private sector. And um, I, I actually found her mobile number out because she was, um, I think her son was a uh, talented footballer mm. and or had been before he got some injury or something. And he'd played for a certain club and uh, I can't remember quite what the connection was, but I think she wanted to to do a trophy in, in his memory or something for the club to play, mm. but it was something like that. I probably got that wrong, but but she said, if anybody you know knew Azel, da, 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 you know, you can contact me on this number. Mm. And I seriously thought about ringing her up, mm. you know, with a dodgy Geordie accent. <laughs> Done some seriously dangerous shit in his service. Um, but if the if the old Bill shot him, let's say he was having a bit of a mental health mm. crisis or something, you know, I'd I'd absolutely yeah. want to know why. I'd like to think that once I'd heard the evidence, mm. I'd go right, okay, well they didn't have any option, mm. you know. But 
she didn't know any of that. Mm. Um, and so, you know, she was like speaking out about her son and how he was just an innocent and he was in the car and he didn't have a gun, he didn't do this, mm. he didn't do anything. And, and it was all total bollocks. He mm. was up to his ears in it. Um, but when I was charged, so when I was, when I was not found guilty, but when the judge at the inquiry decided I'd acted unlawfully, she was like, happy days. Yeah. That's all I wanted. Yeah. He's, he, you know, he acted unlawfully, da, da, da. So of course then when it, I got charged, she was equally happy. Mm. And then when she went to court, I'm fairly certain that she thought I was gonna get convicted. Mm. Um, but her and her three sons, the you know, big lads, they also, bizarrely, that see the, the old Bailey is designed for criminal, serious criminal yeah. cases. And the vast majority of serious criminal cases, the person is brought to court in a prison van yeah. from prison because they're on remand. Mm. Because I'd been very unusually granted bail because I was a police officer and it was, the circumstances were totally different, um, the court isn't designed for, people, for, uh, for the actual defendant to get into the box yeah. from the civilian side. So when we had a break, when the judge went out or whatever, you know, I'd be going outside and I'd be talking to my barristers and on the other side of the lobby, she'd be there talking to her barristers. Yeah. And they positioned her, her and her family right next to the steps mm. for me to get back in the box. So mm. I'd have to come back in and I'd have to, excuse me. And they they always just stepped out of the way. No one said mm. anything or anything else. She, she lost it a bit at one point during, um, she lost it during the public inquiry. Um, I actually became quite tearful when the public inquiry was giving my evidence and I, I wasn't expecting it at all, it just came out of the blue. And, because um, I've never shed a tear over anything like this before, I was giving my evidence and I was describing how we pulled Azel Rodney up into the upright position and I saw the gunshot wound. And I, you know, I didn't burst into tears or anything, but there was a bit of a quiver in my voice and mm -hmm. I had to stop for a second. And she obviously thought I was putting it on because she shouted something, I didn't mm -hmm. hear what she shouted, and she stormed out of the court. And there was another occasion at the Old Bailey where um, the prosecution made a point or something like that and she shouted something out. I think, I think it was during the judge's summing up, actually. The judge's, judge was summing up and she she thought something he'd said wasn't fair or something. Yeah. So she said she said something and I think she was ushered out of the court mm. quietly, not kicked out, but, you know, you need to leave sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, the interesting thing is I, obviously, um, my life was turned upside down. Um in my eyes because, you know, and this was an anger I felt at the scene. We didn't talk about this earlier, but when I was sitting at the scene and I'm, I'm looking at everything that's happening in front of me from the from the back of that control ship, as, as the time went on, you know, as El Rodney, the ambulance turned up, he was basically declared dead and a red ambulance blanket was put over him and uh, I just, oh, I was just angry, you know. Angry at yourself or angry at the situation? Angry at him. Or angry angry at him. him. Okay. You know, here I am, literally yards away from the finishing line, 30 years in the police, got a good job to go to, and you, you selfish git, mm. you know, have, you know, you've taken the shortcut to, to riches mm. by going to rob a Colombian drug dealer, and you forced me into a position where I've had to shoot you. Mm. And now I just know that my world is gonna be on hold. Yeah. I didn't think it was gonna be on hold for as long as it was. Um, but yeah, so I was- How I was many gonna... years was your life on hold for? Well, I say life on hold. I mean, that was my perception at the time. But Knowing that's on the back of your mind, yeah. you've got this case coming up. How, long, how many years in well, total? Well, it was, it was 10 years. Wow. It was 10 years. And how did that affect you personally, your relationship with your missus, your, I split, your I, kids? I, I split up with um, a girl that I was in a relationship I was living with. 
but I can't really blame that on Azel Rodney, to be honest. It was, you know, <laughs> would you ever, would you ever have a conversation with Azel Rodney's mum? Yeah, under the right circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not whether she'd want to. I don't know. What would you say if you saw her? Well, I wouldn't apologise. I'd, I'd apologise for her, you know, her loss. Yeah. But I wouldn't apologise for doing what I had to do. You know, to my, to my mind, it's like, you know, you made the decision that you weren't going to go and get a, a, a decent job and earn your living the hard way. You were going to be a you were going to be a crim and you were going to go out and rip off other drug dealers. Yeah. You know, you would have been quite happy to murder them. Yeah. You know, that, that would that would be, I think, my, my attitude on it. Mm. Probably wouldn't be quite as brutal if I was speaking to. Yeah. Touching back on, on, on what we were just talking about, yeah. there, anonymity and everything. Um, I lost my anonymity as soon as I got charged. The day I got, well, not the, the, the day I got charged, basically the decision was made that I was going to lose my anonymity. It took a week or so because the Home Office had to get involved yeah. to take that away from me. Um, but essentially, um, as soon as it looked like I was going to get charged, I lost my anonymity. Um, and from that point on, um, social media, the press, uh, so much has been written about me that was total bollocks yeah. um, that... I thought, well, the cat's out of the bag now. Had you allowed me to keep my anonymity, and, you know, we've got child sex offenders that have been grooming people yeah. in the north of this country who are allowed to keep their anonymity mm. right the way that through... That pisses me right Right the way through the, the way. end of the trial, and Madness, yet I can't yeah. for doing yeah. what I was trained to do and what I was yeah. expected to do. Um, so as soon as I lost my anonymity, as far as I was concerned, that was gloves off. Yeah. If I'd been allowed to keep my anonymity and it had gone through the courts and I'd been acquitted, I would have never, ever written my book. Okay. But you just wanted to get your voice yeah. out there and tell, yeah. tell the story. Absolutely. Okay. You know, I'll be, it's a classic example. Yeah. So Azel Rodney's been shot. I'm in my previous relationship. Um, and as I said, it was a bit rocky. And we both decided that we were going to take a break, book into a nice hotel in Chichester yeah. for the weekend. Uh, and we were going to talk about things and, you know, go for walks and, mm. you know, try and remedy what was wrong and uh, we literally just sat down we'd driven down in the afternoon we sat down in the dining room um and my phone goes off and she looks at me you know and i went i'm gonna have to answer this mm. and i went out and it was the post-incident uh office where i was based and i went tone you need to know that news of the world are going to write an article about you oh, i said well they can't i've got anonymity mm. but they they think they 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 can get around that. Did your heart then, sink at that moment? So I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. I said, all right, okay. I said, uh, what, what's happening? And they said, right, you're going to get a phone call from um, a barrister or a lawyer at the Met Police Federation lawyers. Are you happy to take the phone call? I said, yeah, fine. So I went back and I sat down. <laughs> 30 seconds later, I have to take this call. Yeah. Went outside. Uh, and he goes, right, okay, Tony, they can't write about you. Um, he said, but they, they, they want to use your nickname. I said, right. What nickname are they going to use? They're going to call you the Met's very own serial killer. Mm. So I had a various nicknames that I've been given over there. The Equalizer, um, the Met's own serial killer. I mean, there was loads of nonsense. Police stuff. hit man. All that, all sort, that, stuff, all that yeah. sort of crap. Yeah. So they said, they said, they're going to call you something. Are you happy for him to be called Tony? Just, just use the name Tony. And I went, yeah, go on then. I was pretty worn down yeah. by this point. So the next morning, got up. Went down to the news agents, bought the news of the world, went home, put a coffee on, opened the news of the world, 
I am known as Dirty Tony. And it's literally got, you know, mm. the officer known in the dark humour of his colleagues from the specialist firearms mm. teams as Dirty Tony. Mm. I was like, mm. oh, fuck's sake. Mm. So I'd had all of this, and that's why that's why I wrote the book. Um, you know, What's the name of the book? It's called Lethal Force. And where can people find that? You'll find it on Amazon. Um, occasionally, I, saw, I went uh, off to Greece about four weeks ago and I saw it I saw it in Gatwick and uh, W.H. Smith but yeah I mean the, the book came out in 2016 yeah. it came out at the same time as a Channel 4 documentary um, the two things were linked um, so it came out um, uh, basically covering my career in the, mm. in the firearms unit um, and that was called Secrets of a Police Marksman yeah. um, as far as I'm aware it, it's still on YouTube I think yeah so there's, there's very if you tap in Tony Long on YouTube, yeah. you'll you'll see you'll various stuff yeah. come up. Yeah, Tony, I've really enjoyed this episode. Good. Thank you for your honesty. My pleasure. Uh, it's really nice to hear your whole thirty-year career and that last story you just told us there about Mr. Rodney is a powerful story for for many many reasons, and uh, I really appreciate you coming down here. No, my pleasure. Yeah, you're a gentleman. Thank you. Good man. Cheers, Tony. Oh, 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 oh,